Hi, my name is Chris Cherry. I used to be a spy. My name is Brie Castellini. I used to read fewer than three oral sex scenes a day. And this is Burn Notice, a weekly rewatch of the USA television masterpiece Burn Notice about Michael Weston, a spy. Throughout this podcast, for one final season, we will be rating each episode on whether it is A, an episode of television, B, a great episode of television, or C, a great episode of Burn Notice. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, unless you want to criticize us, which is isn't possible because we're perfect, check the episode notes for our contact info. See, I changed both of our intros to be like slightly different so that we have some variety, some spice. Exactly. And I never read, read it before, before this moment. Mm. I didn't... Did you notice that I No, I did them? not notice that you had changed it in any way. Like, when you changed yours, I was like, I wonder if she changed mine. Yeah, of course I did. I mean, of course you did. Like, I said I wonder... I, I changed typos in your episode notes while we're recording. I know, exactly. I'm a that's crazy why, person. I mean, that's why I knew that you did. <laughs> but also, it was like, did she, though? Like... And I did. Of course you did. Anyway. So, how... How many oral sex scenes were you reading before? Zero. Zero? Because I wasn't really reading a lot. So you went from zero to three. I went from zero to at least three, if not more. Because what I've noticed is, especially in historical romance novels, because usually in historical romance novels, we're dealing with virgin and reformed rake tropes. Yeah. The reformed rake, the man, obviously, has had a lot of sex, and the woman is a literal virgin. And so, as such, their first time together, or their first handful of times together, have to be a little bit slower, a little bit more about, like, teaching the woman about her body's excitement so that she, it's not as painful when they do the full joining, which is called, is what it's called a lot. No, no, of course. They're joining. If you really wanted to, like, have a nice demarcation between, like, what is romance and what is pornographic. Mm-hmm. Like, it's literally just, like, is the woman the subject or the object? Exactly. Like, that's literally it. And so, yeah, so so as a result, most of the, like, most scenes, especially up until, like, the final sort of climactic sex scene, because there's usually between two and three per book, there is always oral sex first. And usually the man goes down on the woman instantly. And that's either, sometimes that's where it ends the first time. And then the next time they meet, he'll do it again and then they'll fuck. Uh, but as a result, if, if I'm at my current pace of two to three romance novels a day, which I have been yeah. <laughs> for a couple of weeks now, you can get up to like six or seven oral sex scenes a day. And it's interesting because right now I'm reading an author. I've been reading her exclusively for like a week now because she's got Lorraine Heath. She's great. She's got a lot of books. And I've started to notice that... A lot of oral sex. Well, there's a lot of oral sex, but there's also like, you know, they're romance novels. And even though the novels themselves are different, it's like a Burnettis episode. You know, there's a very clear structure to romance novels, which I've come to really appreciate because it's like, it's it's procedurals for girls and in literature. No, it's totally. awesome. Yeah. I love this. And so as a result, like, yeah, she, she, but she has like a very specific way that she has people have sex for the first time. And there's, there's not a lot of variation because, you know, she's writing about the same time period. She's writing about, you know, roughly the same tropes each book. Yeah. And so it's been interesting. Like, she really likes it when men use their tongue to r- do a circle around the navel. That, I saw that in two, three consecutive right. books. Tongue on the na- tongue circling the navel is a big thing for yeah. her. Yeah, I mean, like also like tongue circling things mm-hmm. is just like a really good like romance novel thing to have happen. Totally, because it's really easy to like imagine it, mm-hmm. but it's also like it's very easy to explain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like it's like one of the best ways to like 
really quickly be like a sex thing, you mm-hmm. know? It's but specifically, it's... The navel. It's circling the navel. Right. Three books in a row. Again, though, I really like Lorraine Heath. I think if you if you like, like, classic romance novels, Lorraine Heath is good. I'm going to really quickly, since I know most of our listeners are probably women, uh, I'm going to... Or people who would like romance novels, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend a handful that I've read recently that I think people will like. I will say... Oh, so this is... I did read a, a one before this. I've read a whole series that's the Pink, the Pink Carnation series. It's a series of books set in the French Revolution. Are you familiar with the Pumpernickel? The like... Scarlet Pimpernel? Yeah. 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 Scarlet Pimpernel. Yeah. So it's basically... No, I love swashbuckling. Perfect. So this is a romance series. It's like 10 books and each book follows a different woman who has a a similarly flowery like undercover name, spy name, and they do stuff during the French Revolution. So it's around the time that Scarlet Pimpernel is doing his thing. But each book is like half whatever the lady flower spy is doing back in the, you know, 1700s or whatever. Uh, and then the other half is the woman in present day researching them. And so the woman in present day has a 10 book long arc of falling in love herself, while each individual book follows a different spy she's researching that period of time. And I think it's very fun. That, is, that, that sounds very fun. So that, so yeah, the Pink Carnation series by Lauren Willick, highly recommend. The Duchess Hunt by Lorraine Heath. It's the second book in the second series uh, of a series that she does. I like it a lot. Then I would say uh, Bringing Down the Duke by Evie Dunmore. Highly recommend. That whole trilogy is perfect, but I do think that the first book Bri is Bree is like good. going through like her like ebooks uh-huh. and i think it's really interesting the thing that's happening because i'm looking at all the covers of these books mm-hmm. in the way that like some of them are very standard romance covers mm-hmm. and then like two ripped hot people exactly and then like some of them are like kind of post like like romance cover novel like mm-hmm. where they they're, look they're like called cartoon covers cartoon covers they look like john green covers yeah very much so yeah you know that aesthetic and then I would say, uh, if you're into more, because uh, both of the, the series that I recommended just now were were obviously historicals around the same time period, actually, like within 10 years of each other. And then if you're looking for a, uh, a, a contemporary series, I would say The Chance of a Lifetime Trilogy by Kate Claiborne. So Beginner's Luck, Luck of the Draw, Best of Luck uh, is also very good. These have kind of cozy mystery looking covers. They do. I think they, yeah. they one or two of them have cartoon covers now. Um, but like the the original cover was, yeah, very, very whatever you said. Cozy mystery. Cozy mystery covers. Yeah. So yeah. like it's it's just you know about those. You wrote those. I uh, I outlined those. Yeah. I never I never wrote a cozy myst- uh, mystery novel, but I I did write you the should. outline. But this is a good episode. Let's talk about this episode. Yeah, I think. It's very appropriate that we opened with romance novels to talk about this episode. Oh, yeah? Why is that? Well, let's talk about this episode. But yeah, so this episode, which is very romance-inflected, is called Forget Me Not, Season 7, Episode 2. It aired on June 13th, 2013. It was written by Ben Watkins and directed by our boy Wicked Pissa. Yeah, Wicked Pissa, get yours. Oh my god. I will say right now, this is a very, very well-directed episode. I was really impressed. I I think he really likes, something that I noticed is he really likes uh, fluid, he doesn't like to do as many cuts. No. It's a lot of, like, the camera is very moving. Yeah, which I, like, I am someone right now who, I'm watching a lot of movies right now. Mm -hmm. I am, like, 
for the first time since, like, possibly film school, really interested in cameras. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like I could direct a movie right now for, like, the first time in, like, years. Like, <laughs> my I'm in the headspace where, like, I'm thinking a lot about cameras and, mm -hmm. like, moving cameras. And I love, I love shit like that. I love these big, long runners where we're Me moving too. the camera. I love it. It's great. I feel like movies today don't move the camera enough. Yeah, because it means that you have to actually, like, live in the space. And it's exactly. harder to do, like, CGI. Exactly. You have to do, it's much more of a practical camera move. And that's why I, I yeah. favor it when I'm directing. Exactly. You want these practical moves and it's really hard, like, yeah, to do CG and that's why we don't give them as much. And mm -hmm. that's why movies look like they do now. Yeah. Which is not as good. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Good job, Wicked Pizza. Good job, Wicked Pizza. Jeffrey Donovan is the actor. <laughs> Wicked Pizza is the director. Exactly. Because that's where he can be his full Bostonian self. Exactly. Oh my god. So what's this episode about? This, uh, the premise of this episode, according to IMDb, is Michael returns to Miami but can't contact his mother or his friends in order to maintain his cover. Which is an interesting description because literally the <laughs> first like thing... It's like instantly that's not true. The first thing that he does is contact his mother. Oh yeah, for sure. Which, I will already say, this is a great premise. Yeah. Like, this is like an episode of television... That's like built on story hooks mm -hmm. in the way that Burn Notice tends not to be. Like structural story hooks. Because it's got like two premises to it. Two kind of separate premises mm -hmm. that are not plots. They are like structural premises. Mm -hmm. The first one is that Michael is in Miami, but he cannot like, talk to anyone in Miami. Yeah. He cannot be seen. He is following his friends, but he cannot be seen by his friends. That is the first premise. Yep. And we'll get to the second one in a second, but that's the first one. And that's such a good, like, good thing. Mm -hmm. There's, like, it reminds me of that episode of Buffy where Angel's back in town and, like, mm -hmm. and, like, can't be seen. Like, that's always a really good, meaty, fun thing to do. Mm -hmm. it, it creates a lot of, like, dramatic irony. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, longing and, like, it, it's it's inherently emotional because yeah. you know that necessarily they will have to overhear or oversee something that, like, they shouldn't be seeing and they wish they could remark upon but just can't. Yeah. And it also, like, really taps into the inherent voyeurism of, film mm -hmm. in a way where like you're watching things you're watching things with the character you are both kind of watching the episode together you and michael voyeurism is a good way to describe it because there are a handful of shots that um jeffrey donovan does that feel exceptionally voyeuristic and i and i like how much distance he is putting between like michael like when michael when we're seeing something through michael's eyes even when we're not literally seeing like through a rifle scope which we do occasionally yeah. when we're seeing through michael's eyes we're kind of far away we're not close to the characters we are seeing reacting to them as he is. No, totally. Which and, is from afar. Yeah. And having like, to kind of paint our own picture in our head. And it's one of those things where it's like, it's really good mm -hmm. that Jeffrey Donovan is directing this episode because this episode, more than like possibly any other Burn Notice episode I've seen, is about Michael Weston's interiority. Mm -hmm. and I, I will say, and this was true the last time Wicked Pissa directed, I don't think Wicked Pissa is the best director of Jeffrey Donovan. But also, here's the thing, right? But I think it really works in this episode because I think the thing that we learn from this episode and I think the other one that he directed is that, like, at his heart, Michael Weston's secretly an idiot. <laughs> like, like, the thing about Michael Weston is that, like, he is so stoic, right? Mm -hmm. Like, whenever he's around, he is showing no emotion. Mm -hmm. Like, he is so, like practical like serious. serious and everything and so like in this episode where we're really 
hitting his interiority, it's like amazing to realize that like he's in a romance novel in his head. <laughs> like he is in one. Like he is in a romance novel in his head, like at all times, I think. I think he is like really He is a, he is a tragic rake. Yeah, he is in his head. And like it kind of makes Michael Weston almost make more sense to me because it's like there's this fun like dissonance there of like he's very very serious but like it's all like this weird romantic bit in his head Mm -hmm. that's happening yeah he's like he's serious because he's like well this is what they need for me exactly i can't reveal my real vulnerability or else i'll leave those that i love vulnerable too exactly like because you kind of have to be i think i may have talked about on this podcast a while back last season about michael keaton batman I mean, you talked about it last episode, I think. Was it last episode? You didn't talk about it in detail. But you no, no. But, like, the idea it. that, like, Michael Keaton's Batman, I really buy as Batman because, like, he is the only Bruce Wayne that I can think of that really feels like he was traumatized as a child. I don't know if you have talked about this No, before. um, no, because I think, Because like, I haven't seen those. Because Michael Keaton... I've only seen nipple suit Batman. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne just feels like there's a sort of child childishness to him Mm -hmm. like where he really feels like a someone who like is a little bit arrested at like nine years old and like he's kind of exactly and so he's playing like a nine-year-old's version of an adult Hmm. you know what i mean like he's kind of being an adult and like he is an adult right but like it's this very simplified version of an adult where like there's no like self-awareness there's Mm -hmm. no like irony or anything to it so mm-hmm. like weirdly sincere because he's kind of arrested there right and michael weston is kind of that too hmm. he's like also someone who's like a lot of childhood trauma right who is now a little bit arrested at that young age and that like childlike version of the world mm-hmm. you know like he it understands almost suddenly makes the morality of the show the very like black and white morality of the show in many ways that is enforced by the characters but not necessarily enforced by the world we're actually literally watching makes sense too. Yeah, it's like very much this very not naive but kind of naive view of the world, mm-hmm. this very kind of romantic view of the world. Very binary. Very binary, very romantic, very like not actually all that practical for all of his practical Mm -hmm. this very simplistic view of the world and like michael weston is that kind of character as well Mm -hmm. yeah Um, i I buy that that's that's very interesting how that worked out so should we get into the weeds let's get into the weeds get specific yeah so like it's oh god this is so good so anyway the episode starts Mm -hmm. with madeline and madeline wants to go to the fbi in person because madeline is the fbi or the cia or this no i think I think she wants to go to the FBI. Why does she want to go to the FBI? I think because the CIA is not talking to her. Or like, or she might be trying to go to the CIA because I feel like she says FBI at some point. She says federal building, but I don't maybe know if like, that necessarily. That's no, true. It. Maybe it was federal building or something. There's an F in there somewhere. But the point <laughs> is, like, she has been calling everyone in the government to try to find out what's going on with Michael because she fucked up last week. Right, and so they like, knew he was in danger before, and then they knew he was definitely in danger after Madeline fucked up. And no one is telling her anything. And she's like, fuck it. I'm literally going to go to the building and make someone talk to me. I'm going to Madeline Weston this shit. I'm going to get it done. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, Sam and Jesse are there. And like, no, no, (laughs) this is not a, this is a bad idea. You're not going to get anything. You're going to make things worse. Like we are trying to find the guy that you talked to. Let us do that. Lay low. Mm -hmm. But she's like, no, I can't. I can't do anything else. Yeah. I can't live with myself if this is. I also legitimately forgot that Nate Jr., Charlie was in the last episode. Mm-hmm. I thought he was just preferred to. I know. I saw that in your notes. We finally meet Nate Newner. No. Like, no. We but definitely. Like, 
There was a whole scene with Carlos. I know, but here's the thing. Carlos is so boring that I forgot <laughs> it. No, yeah, Carlos is so boring. Um, so I legitimately... And the child is boring. This is the, point, the child is also incredibly boring, and it's not his fault. Mm-hmm. He is like a child, but he is like a child on burn notice. Mm-hmm. And children on burn notice aren't like kind of smart, like Macaulay Culkin, like... Precocious. Wife, per, they're not... There's no precocious... There's very little precocious children on burn notice. Mm-hmm. Like, they are innocent babes all. Mm-hmm. And that is what Charlie is. Mm-hmm. Well, he's uh, also like three, so... No, he is. But like, yeah, like, the, that is like the age that they're going for. That is the thing. Like, this mm-hmm. is not... This is not a character. This is like a... This is a prop. Yeah, this is a prop. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, cute little prop, though. Cute prop. Anyway, so Madeline goes to the federal building... And, like, goes to the parking garage and is told, like, yeah, park in the garage, go down to the second floor, cross a bridge. That's how you get into the CIA. It's really easy. Yeah. And she is in the garage and she is paranoid as fuck. Because, like, there's, like, a guy who's maybe kind of looking at her. She's like, I don't know. Something feels wrong. I Mm -hmm. feel like I'm walking into something right now. But, like, the guy doesn't do anything. He drives away. So she kind of, she gets into the elevator. She kind of relaxes a little bit. And the elevator, like crashes on like it makes this weird clunky noise Mm -hmm. and it stops going down and starts going up Mm -hmm. and she's like freaking out this is all very tense good job Mm -hmm. like like as soon as soon as the the thing started to shake i was like okay so i know who this is but i like that like they play he he gives us this tense moment of like is someone gonna jump her in the parking garage and then no we diffuse the tension and then we think that we're all relaxed and then the tension comes back. Yeah. It's like, it was, it was very, very well spun. It's so well done. And like, I will say I had forgotten how last week ended. <laughs> and so I like, I wasn't sure who this was. Oh, so yeah. it no, worked... I, I knew immediately. So but... it worked on me. I was like, I mean, it still worked on me. Even, yeah. the, even if I knew who it was, like the tension, the like, cause we're with Madeline. We're just looking at her and looking at her looking around. And it's yeah. like, I, I felt her fear. I felt exactly. her paranoia. Yeah, no, totally. Anyway, she gets, to the top floor of the parking garage, and there's Michael. Mm-hmm. It's Michael. Oh, she does pull a gun, though. She's, she's, she pulls a gun. She's she fucking... Gu- she's loaded. Yeah, no, she's ready to go. She pulls a gun, but it's Michael. And it starts the first of a trend in this episode that I really enjoy, of no one being really happy to see Michael. Like, there's a little bit... There's a great thing that's happening in this episode, wherein, like, Michael has put them through so much shit, and they're all kind of moved on a little. Mm-hmm. Everyone's annoyed that Michael is there Mm -hmm. when they finally meet him. And I think that's great. I think it's great too, especially because you can watch Jeffrey Donovan look so excited to see everyone. And like, you know, when we linger on like them having their little conversations that we know he's overhearing, like there's such a tenderness to like, exactly. I'm back. That's what I'm saying is that like, I really think it's good that he is directing this episode because of this, because he's, his emotions are actually so huge. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's so fascinating to watch the episodes that he directs because, like, it's so fascinating to watch. This is what he thinks Michael Weston is. These are the the things that he is thinking about in his head mm-hmm. when he is in other episodes. Like, no director is like directing towards the version of Michael Weston that is in his head. <laughs> you know, I guess that's true. I I find some of his line readings a little bit more like flat in yeah. some ways. Where it's like, hi, mom. <laughs> like, sometimes he says stuff, and I'm like, have you ever talked to another human being in your life, Jeffrey Donovan? Like, you're selling me on it a little bit, but every once in a while, he'll have a line where I'm like, you want, you want one more take, JD? <laughs> one more take. 
Let's try again. But yeah, so they have a scene in a stairwell where Michael tells her that she is spying on Sam and the Jesse and the gang. He is spying. Or like, yeah, she is. Yeah. Tells Madeline that he is spying on Sam and Jesse and the gang because like they are tracking down the guy whose name is Gamble. Mm-hmm. Who like he's he's the mysterious man from last week. The mysterious man from last week. Sam and Jesse are looking for him. So Michael is going to watch Sam and Jesse and Fee look for him, and then at the opportune moment get him. Right. That is the plan. But no one can know that he is here. Mm-hmm. That is the most important thing. And he explains to her that he is talking to her because she keeps calling and she needs to stop calling. Mm-hmm. And she is very upset. Right. She is again so much more annoyed. Then she is happy to see him. And right. it's great. But then right before he's like, all right, I gotta go. She's like, well, can we ha- fucking hug or something? Can yeah. I hold my son? Yeah, and they have a very good hug. I mean, that is the great thing about every interaction with Michael mm-hmm. is that, like, everyone is very annoyed at him, but still also at the end it's like, but also I love you, obviously. Like, yeah. thank God you're okay. Mm-hmm. Yada, yada. But, like, we don't forefront that. The script right. does not forefront those things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very smart. I do, too. I also, this is the longest time any of them have been apart since the beginning of the series. Exactly. Like, we've had stints, you know, but, like, we've always been able to check in with each other after a month or so. I feel like there's been other stretches that are... I'm Nine a, months? Honestly, like... I'm kind of surprised watching the episode, like, in the last week, that it's only been nine months, because it feels like it's, like, two years. I mean, that's all, that's over a year, and, like, you have to remember they were also four Wait, weeks. what? That, it's almost a year. <laughs> Not over a year. I, I, I think I, my, my slurring made it sound like over, but I said almost a year. And also, you have to remember that, like, they were apart for a couple of weeks before that nine months right. started in jail. So they're basically going from, like, several weeks in a detention center to Mike Mike without Lifel. No, it's just <laughs> Life like, without Michael. Mike without Lifel. No, just in the sense that, like, everyone is already settled into a new life. I think because they're so pissed at him. I think a lot of it is, like, all right, you're back? Then fine. We're not even going to mourn you. No, no. I mean, in the sense of, like, the initial setup of them all having lives mm-hmm. feels very, like, like, it almost feels like, too soon? It, too soon, like, it's, their new lives already feel, feel lived in. But I think that's what I'm saying, is that, like, they were so, they felt so betrayed by the way that he got them out of this situation, and, like, he has been tossing them around for so long. Like, Sam was already kind of pissed at him towards the end of last season because of, like, how much he jerked them around, and so once he was like, yeah, I'm back in the CIA and I'm gonna be gone, they're like, you know what, fuck you. I'm not going to wait around for our lives to get easier with you in them. So if you're going to be gone, I'm going to hit the ground running. I mean, it's not necessarily like a waiting around thing. It's more just like everyone has a level of comfort in their new lives that feels like they've been doing it for more than a year. That's my thing. That's literally it. It's not a huge deal. But so after the scene with Madeline, Michael meets up with Agent Strong and says that, you know, Michael says, we should work with my people. I know these people. Anytime. Like, they're not going to blow my cover. They're clearly investigating so that no one blows my cover. Exactly. Like, why can't we just work with them? And Agent Strong is like, no, 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 no. You cannot work with them. They cannot They cannot see you, but also you need to watch them at length. Watch all of this footage of them because we are monitoring their every move and you, ha- you have to watch all of it. They're not just monitoring them. They have multiple angles within Fee's apartment. Exactly. And this is how Michael finds out that Fee has got herself a new boy. Mm-hmm. Carlos, and he is not happy. <laughs> he looks so sad. And he's so sad. We watch Michael look sad, incredibly sad, and then the episode does a thing 
that I was not expecting. Yeah. And I literally, like, I sat up. I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> genuinely, genuinely, I'm so happy and amazed because we cut to another shot, a bar in Dublin in 2001. We get a, like, little lower third that says, like, Dublin, 2001, because we're doing a flashback. The first flashback to pre- burn notice time ever ever the very first flashback we've never seen a flashback before the only thing that technically is a flashback is fall of sam max but that's not even a flashback that's more of a prequel series exactly no this is a flashback and it's amazing it's really it's good it's so and, good and also as soon as i saw it i was like hell yes we're getting the accent we're getting the accent we're getting the accent <laughs> i mean we get the accent but it's also like because we're in this like irish bar and, like, it's over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, the show kind of has to do more world building than it normally does. You know what I mean? No. Like, like you really have to, like, we're setting up that this is a different time and place. Mm-hmm. You know? And, like, so, like, everything with the visual aesthetic has to feel different. So we feel like we're in a flashback. We feel like we're not just in a different scene. Like, I mm-hmm. feel like everything's shot differently. Totally. I feel like um, it's darker. It's more crowded. It's darker. It's more crowded. There's more a lot blue of like hues. Than yeah, warm. exactly. There's not the warm hues that we're so used to. There's a lot like I think all the lenses are a little bit wider. A lot of just really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. So we're in this rowdy gun bar in Dublin and we see Michael seeing Fee for the first time. And he asks the bartender about her. And the bartender says, you don't want that. She's taken. Mm-hmm. And that's the first flashback that we see. Yeah, and, and what she's doing is she's doing, like, a drunk, put-together-a-gun yeah. challenge or something. She is. It's, it's, it's so good. It's sort of, like, part Indiana Jones of, like, drinking a, a much yeah. smaller woman, drinking a man under a table, but combined with a thing we've actually, I think, seen Fee do before, which is, like, have a really small amount of time to, like, reassemble a, a gun. Here's the other thing, too, right? Is, yes, I was excited for the return of michael's irish accent yes but it was also like oh this is the return of like fucking fiona's irish accent mm-hmm. like that one was the one that i was almost more interested in because mm-hmm. it's like we haven't seen that since well the opening credits where she says miami <laughs> <laughs> but like i was like equally excited for that and she like she looks amazing she looks very good she looks amazing and like because we're doing this flashback and because we're doing these, like, big wide-angle lenses and, like, weird, almost... There's a very dreamlike quality to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Now that you've said it, like, I'm glad I brought up... You're glad I brought up romance novels. Yeah, I'm exactly. Like, I it, it did feel very romantic. No, it did. Like, and, like, because that's the thing, right? Because, especially since, like, an Outlander, there's a lot of, like, kind of these sort of Irish, Scottish kind of Celtic themes and like it's a certain strain of romance novel Mm -hmm. that's very Celtic and like so here we are in Ireland and it just feels like that it's so there's so much like texture Mm -hmm. and character to all of this and like it's so not the burn notice house style Mm -mm, not at all it is like not at all it is so much driven by what the story needs and like all of the aesthetic choices that it's make, making are in service of that. Mm-hmm. And, like, not in service of the house style. Not in service of kind of making you feel safe. Mm-hmm. But, like, showing you a new thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, I 
I just love it. It's really good. I'm very, very into it. Anyway, we cut back to the present and a fee gets a call uh, with a friend who has a lead on Gamble, the guy that they're looking for. And so fee follows, like fee follows that lead to like this place. And then like Michael and agent strong and the CIA follow the gang mm-hmm. right behind. Well, technically, they're ahead by a little bit. Like, the, they hear Fee get the address, address and so yeah. they head to it. And then when they all get to the address and Fee gets there not long after them, uh, what's it, Strongman is like, wow, how the hell did they get here so fast? And he's like, Fee's driving. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. Fuck! No, it's so good. <laughs> uh, like, I got... When, no lie, I've never cried at Burn Notice. Uh, we've I've gotten close. We've talked about it before. Uh-huh. I shed tears at that first flashback because I knew what they were about to do. And I watching Michael be so in love with Fee at instant, like first gun loading uh-huh. site. I, I was like, this episode is going to devastate me. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, Fuck. Oh my God. Um, I'm, how did we get here? <laughs> how did we, God, I know. Here's the thing. We are praising, uh, Wicked Pizza a lot mm-hmm. with good reason. Yes, but also good job Ben Watkins. Yeah, yeah. I, like holy. Can shit. Can I say like Ben Watkins? Because we will get to th- Ben Watkins sticks the landing on this episode so hard, and we yes. will get to that. But like, good job Ben Watkins. Like holy shit, he's anyway. really come a long way. Because I think his the most recent episode he wrote solo was his first great episode of television. Right. No spoilers. We'll talk about the end of the well, episode. We will. The episode. <laughs> oh yeah, we will. But um, like, I think he's got a strong fucking contender for number two. Oh right. So yeah. So anyway, like Fee and Jesse and Sam and Carlos <laughs> arrive at the scene at this like warehouse where it seems like Gamble might be, and they are immediately pinned down by guys with guns mm-hmm. with automatic guns. automatic guns. These are not manual guns. Mm-mm. So like, it's extra uh, deadly. Exactly. And the um, and they have the high ground. And they have the high ground, yeah. They like much like Obi-Wan Kenobi, <laughs> they have the high ground. It's over. Yeah. Except Michael Weston is there. Mm-hmm. And Michael just really wants to go right in, but Strong's like, you can't do anything. So Michael sets up in a little sniper's nest and um takes out the gun guys mm-hmm. while like trying to make it seem like he is not there. Mm-hmm. And there's this great moment where like Sam and Jesse and Carlos are having this whole like life or death moment where they're like we're just gonna run out we like we have very <laughs> yeah. little weapons well, we, so, yeah jesse was gonna run out and carlos was gonna give him cover and carlos right, exactly. was like one of us will probably make it which yeah. is a moment where i'm like fucking good for you carlos no totally you like him because he's boring i mean i'm not gonna say that my thing isn't boring men i know <laughs> however i just i like that he is not just one of the gang but like he's willing to fucking die for no them. of course no i get it like instantly or at least instantly uh, as far as we see him. And I, yeah. I appreciate that level of, like, instant loyalty. Right. No, I get it. Like, anyway, so they're about to run out. Mm-hmm. And then, like... And Sam starts doing cover fire. From, yeah. Like, a, he can't see at all. He's just sort of shooting blindly. Literally. And the the overhead, the spy tips, the overhead spy tips. The overhead the, spy tips, yes. The, narr- the narration says, like, shooting without looking is useless. It's completely <laughs> useless. You will never hit anything. And so, like, Sam kind of just shoots wildly, and then Michael takes them out, and, like, they're all like, what just happened? <laughs> and Sam's just like, I think it's just, like, a lucky shot. Yeah, but Fee, 
does not think that. Fee instantly Fee? turns around and walks back and looks directly at where the sniper nest is as Michael is hiding in the car he was using as the sniper's nest. Yeah, it's so good. Instant. Like, I was kind of hoping she would see him, but right. I almost like better that she didn't, but knew instantly where he was. Exactly. The look on her face. Ugh. Ugh. Gabrielle Anwar, also amazing in this Holy episode. Holy shit, she's so good. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so the gang, minus Carlos, who is <laughs> depositing the car somewhere. Yeah. Conveniently. Hang out in Gamble, Gamble's Chop Shop, where he has a phone relay situation, mm-hmm. wherein so like calls come into this chop shop in this like big computer system, and they get relayed somewhere else where he currently is. Right. And the thing is, they cannot leave the shop with the computers because it's all connected together and like they don't know if they'll screw everything up by moving it so they Mm -hmm. have to stay there in this shop and not leave although fee has a lot of emotions about michael right now it's like i can't believe i'm still doing this bullshit Mm -hmm. and she kind of has suspicions Mm -hmm. and so she's like fuck this i'm out um, but Sam and Jesse stay behind and call our old friend Dixon, mm-hmm. who we love. <laughs> Who's definitely a person. Yeah. This thing is like, he's kind of a sniveling coward who yeah. like half-heartedly flirts with Fee. Exactly. That's Which, it. That's it. Which like is more than he used to have. Sure. I think like they decided too late and just as a Hail Mary that that was his thing. Mm-hmm. That he kind of half-heartedly flirts with Fee. Mm-hmm. Like, because before he had literally no character. Yeah, he was just a guy who was sort of a coward. Yeah. But no, like, and, but not even a coward. Like, he is a coward, but, like, even when it started, it's not even that he's a coward. It's just that, like, he very reasonably does not want to get involved in any of this. I think Mm -hmm. they really lean into him being coward-like, like, like, having cowardice Mm -hmm. and being a coward more because they're like, I guess this is the character. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of Dixon that's just, I guess this is the character. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but he shows up and they like blackmail him into like tracing the call because like he is already at a crime scene and he is on probation. He does not want to touch a computer. He cannot touch a computer legally, but they're like, yeah, it's the crime scene. You're already fucked. Your probation. <laughs> Your probation's already fucked. You might as well do it. Yeah, you might as well do it and actually get paid. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in the surveillance van, Agent Strong is listening to this and being like, oh, your friends are blackmailers, right? Just being real catty. (laughs) So Dixon traces the call and like the gang shows up at Gamble's actual place and wait for him to show up so they can grab him. Mm -hmm. Like he is on his way. He is not there yet. But when he is there, they're going to get him. Yeah, and they, like, spread out. Yeah, exactly. And Michael sets up his sniper perch, and he cannot stop looking at Fee. And then we get another flashback. When we got the first flashback, I was unsure how many flashbacks we were going to get. I was also slightly wondering, are there going to be flashbacks the whole season? Like, I was trying to figure out, because we actually went a decent amount of time between the first two flashbacks. Mm -hmm. I was unsure how much flashbacks we were getting. Mm -hmm. Then we get another, and I'm so excited. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's, like, them, like, they've met a couple of times, and he asked her to dance, and we're doing all these, like, really tight shots of, like, them talking in, like, this dark place, and we don't quite know where they are, and he asked her to dance, and then we kind of pull back into this wide, and where they're alone in this room. Well, first it's a bunch of people around them dancing, and then it slowly fades away, and it's just them dancing. Exactly. It's... So good. It's very good. It's just like, again, Wikipedia just 
well done. Absolutely well done. Yeah. And, and like, and the, I think the whole, like, while they're waiting for Gamble to show up, like, Jesse and Sam are sniping at each other like an old married couple hiding behind some garbage. And I, like, their whole scene is, I love those two characters together. Because they're the most classically, like, comedic guys. Yeah. And they have so much fun together. And then so Carlos and she are separating. It's the second episode of Monroe where Jesse hides behind trash. <laughs> No, it's so good. You're right. Like, um, like Jesse and my like, just is like, I don't want to hide behind the trash. There's all these bushes around. <laughs> it's like, no. And Sam's like, no, they won't be expecting the trash. <laughs> it's so good. I love them so much. And like, uh, that's something that Michael kind of like, because he can, it's unclear how much he's able to listen in on because we're getting the perspective like he can hear them because he stays on them for a little while, like listening to them uh-huh. snipe at each other. But then later he can't hear certain things. So like one thing that was hard for me in this whole sequence, especially as it it ends, is what Michael is actually able to overhear versus not. I am... I generally assume he can hear things. But then at the end, he's like, wait, like, what's happening? Because once Fee gets taken, because that's what happens, is Fee, Fee tries to, like, clear her area from a gardener, but it turns out the gardener is Gamble, and Gamble chloroforms her and takes her away. Yeah. And so, and so uh, like, everyone starts running, and he's like, uh, Strong, what's happening? As if he hasn't heard that and can't hear Michael, or he can't hear true. the boys. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, that is weird. So I wa- that was the only thing that wasn't clear for me. Like, right. It doesn't hurt because I that whole sequence was fun and I yeah. like Michael in his little sniper blanket <laughs> hiding on a roof. Like Quinn was walking by as I was watching this episode and was like, oh, he looks cute in his little blanket. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Jeffrey Donovan's Michael is just a sad little boy. I was kind of hoping there would be a sequence where like Fee walks by the house Michael's on and he's like holding his breath and she's like super close and we're not sure if they're going to see each other or not. And he has to hold perfectly still and then she walks away. I was kind of hoping for that. That would have been good too. That would have been so good. The yearning. The yearning. I love. It's about the yearning. I love how like, it's yearning, but it's, like, framed like a horror scene. The way you're saying it, like, no, that's great. That's just genuinely really good. Mm-hmm. That's so potent. Mm. Oh. Anyway, so... But yeah, so, so the thing that I said happens, and yeah, now exactly. they're all like, they get, Yeah, Fee, like, there, there is, like, a landscape guy that won't go away, so Fee goes to get him to go away, and it turns out it's Gamble, mm-hmm. and he kidnaps Fee, and then every man in the scene realizes Fee is missing. Mm-hmm. So Michael gets in a shouting match with Agent Strong, because, of course, Michael just wants to go see Fee, and, like, is, like, this whole me hiding thing is dumb, and he's pissed that, like, he fucked up and didn't catch that she was getting taken, um, well, but he couldn't have seen it. Like, we see she her walk behind, like, a house down the way. Well, yeah, but, but if he hadn't been, like, so strictly following this policy of non-intervention, mm-hmm. like, he, like I think that's what he's mad at. Like, oh, 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 I yeah. thought you meant that Michael was mad at himself. I was like, I Well, no, no, he's mad at himself, too. I think he's, like, mad at Agent Strong, mm-hmm. but he's also mad at himself for listening to him. Yeah. I think, because there was that thing fair. that's happening in the episode where, like, everyone including Michael, is like, you're better than this other guy. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you not just taking charge all the time? Like, why have you not, like, gotten this guy fired or something? Like, mm-hmm. you're like, you're Michael Weston. What are you doing? Because mm-hmm. like, that's the thing about Michael Weston is that, like, he thinks that every single situation that he is the ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. And so, like, anything that goes wrong anytime, anywhere is his fault because, like, he is the most capable person in every room that he is in. Mm-hmm. 
It's also very romance protagonist, I think. Exactly. Truly so many romance novels, not just historicals, but, like, this is, seems to be a trend, uh, like, throughout, is that the men feel so much pressure to be, like, stoic and masculine, yeah. and, like, they they cannot let anyone in because then they would let everyone down. Like, they, they take on everything, every responsibility, every accountability until they, until a, a woman... Yeah. And her soft wetness at the center of her opens him up. God. Yeah, <laughs> no, but this is, like, the thing that, like... Yeah, no, it I'm is really glad board. It is, it's good that we started talking about romance novels. Yeah. Like, this is, like, a really good time. We're good at this podcast. We, we are. did this on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's about time we got good at this podcast. Right at the end. Honestly, I think we're getting really good at this podcast as... Right as Burn Notice is getting really good at being a TV show. Well, hey, it's the shoe fits. Anyway, and after he gets pissed at Agent Strong, it triggers another flashback wherein Michael and Fee wind up kissing in the light of a car that Fee has just blown up. Mm-hmm. It's so gorgeous. Yeah. It's on, there's a weird thing happening in the scene where, like, I think Michael's a little mad at Fee for something. Like, he thought she was going to just... No, he's not mad. She's mad at him. So basically, oh. it starts with Fee planting a bomb under a car in the yeah. rain, and she gets in a car that Michael's waiting in, and she says to Michael, like, why did you park so far away? And he's like, I get a feeling you were going to do more than whatever they were there to do. And then the car blows up behind them, and he kind of gives her a look. Got it, and yeah. then they that kiss. Kind of... And as they become silhouettes, they kiss as the explosion happens it's behind them. It's so good. It's, it's fucking so... great. It's amazing. Like, we lose all detail in their face as they, like, start to lean into kiss, and then they don't, and then they do kiss. Like, it's not just an instant, like, kiss and go. Yeah. Like, it, it is more tentative. They are learning each other. It really does. This feels like the episodes of X-Files that are directed by David Duchovny. Like, it's like, they're also kind of like this, okay. where it's like a lot more, there's a cheesiness to them. Mm-hmm. And like, really getting into the, like, mindset of this character who's kind of a dumb idiot man. <laughs> yeah. See, uh, I like boring men, but more than that, I like dumb idiot men. Yeah. Oh my god. I love, dumb- I love a himbo. Dumb idiot men who feel like they have such responsibility. Yeah, a stoic himbo is specifically what I'm looking for. Exactly. And so sometimes you're looking for that. And like when you're looking for stoic himbos, like you're going to get a lot of boring dudes. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? I'm patient. Yeah. I'll wait. You'll wait for the right stoic himbo. (laughs) Uh, Oh my god. Which is not a which is not a phrase that I would use to describe Quinn in any way. <laughs> no. Well but Quinn defies a lot of my type. I mean that's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I don't know. I've always said like a lot of the times like you fall in love with the person who's so good that it doesn't matter that they're completely not your type. Exactly. Yeah. I mean ultimately Quinn is you. I mean, that's true. <laughs> you you all should know that after we recorded the Dexter episode, our bonus episode, I left the apartment to go have uh, lunch with somebody. And Christine apparently stayed at my apartment with my fiance for like several hours. When I got home, I was like, when did Christine leave? And Quinn was like, like a half an hour ago. And I was like, are you serious? Yeah. I was out for several hours. You create a play date. <laughs> I think I even used that word with Quinn. I was like, I, I apparently need to set you up on more play dates together. Anyways, oh this, is, this is not in the episode. Please continue. We're on uh, number 11. Oh, God. Anyway, so Fee wakes up in a torture room and Gamble starts interrogating Fee. He explains that he knows that the CIA is try- is going to try to kill him because he knows about Michael. And so he wants to trade both Fee and his silence for a deal, the best deal that he can possibly get. Mm-hmm. He also asks Fee to call Michael because, like, he thinks Michael can get him this deal. When she says that she does not know where he is, he's like, 
you better be lying because if you're telling the truth, I'm just going to kill you. Because mm-hmm, you're not useful to exactly. me. I'm going to start just dropping bodies. Exactly. And I, like, when Fee tells him that she doesn't know where he is, I was unconvinced, even though I know she doesn't know. And I'm wondering if she did that on purpose. If she's playing him of, like, no, I don't, I for sure don't know where he is. Like, do you think that that was part of the performance? I don't Do you think know. she knows that she's trying to extend her own life by making it seem like you should torture me longer? I mean, it's possible. There's also it was the, very unconvincing. It's also the possibility that she's like, she kind of knows that he's here. That's true. Like, I think they're already playing a little bit the idea that like, I think he's around. Like, mm-hmm. I just have a she feeling. She can sense him. Like, yeah. And it's like, I In can't. Her moist center. Oh my God. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> anyway, so Gamble calls Sam on Fee's phone while Michael and uh, Agent Strong are listening he wants to talk to Michael and Sam says that he can call Michael on a private satellite phone and Gamble gives him an address of his warehouse hideout where he is. It's like, here, you give me the satellite phone at this location and then I will talk to Michael. Mm-hmm. And then like Jesse, like he hangs up, Sam hangs up and Jesse's like, what are you doing? We don't have a satellite phone. It's like, yeah, I'll think of something. I don't know. I'd have to say something. It's going to kill Fee. And, <laughs> and, and then I think Carlos is like, sorry, your, your plan is we'll figure it out. That's, like, because Carlos is clearly, like, you know, he's not been around them very much. Right. And Carlos is pissed, like, you don't have a better plan? And Sam's like, I mean, do we ever? No. Exactly. <laughs> we but, also establish in the scene, Gamble, like, goes to great like, goes to great lengths to explain that, once again, I will have the high ground in this scenario. Mm-hmm. There's no way that you can approach me where I will not know that you're coming. Yeah, he's got 360 view. However, when we actually cut back to the warehouse, he has like these tiny slits of windows yeah. that he can't really see out. Like if they sneak up on him when he happens to be looking out a different window, it would not be that hard, I feel like. Well, I know. But I do think like that is part of why he is saying that is to like really like psych them up. Mm-hmm. And say, like, oh, yeah, I can see everywhere. This is, like, the best location I could possibly be at. Because, like, it works. Because, like, the thing is, on paper, the place is a really good place to be. On paper, he does have great view. Mm-hmm. It, but, like, yeah, like, once you actually get there, it's kind of not great. And yeah, clearly this guy is bluffing because yeah. he's on, he, he, like, he knows the end is nigh. Exactly. But also, at the same time, if you just look at the place on paper, mm-hmm. he's correct. Sure. Fair enough. Yeah. But, yeah, so back in the van... Strongman is like, good, let's go. Sam Axe will be the distraction. Mm-hmm. And Michael is so pissed. Like, no, you're using them as bait. Like, you don't really care about any of these people. You just want to get this guy dead. And yeah, like, by any means necessary. By any means necessary. And so Michael takes an opportunity to just Batman away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Strong is like talking to his people like, hey, get in position. There will be civilians uh, doing a distraction over here. Yeah, right, Michael? And he turns around and Michael's gone. And I'm like... Yes! You think... But waiting! You think Jeffrey Donovan could be a good Batman? Hmm. We've talked about... We've talked about Michael Weston as Batman before. We have, emotionally. I think he would be a good Bruce Wayne. I don't know if he'd be a good Batman because I don't think he has a strong enough chin. That's true. And that's all you see in the Batman costume. Yeah, that is the thing about Batman is that you have to have a strong chin. Robert Pattinson does have a strong chin. And I I hope that he... Like, I feel like he's playing up the, like, Batman's a freak. I want to play a freak. Kind of. I don't know if they're actually going to give us freaky Batman. But I don't... I don't think that they can commit. I don't think DC will commit. I don't trust the movie's version of Freaky Batman. Exactly. Like, so yeah, Michael chases the gang and pulls them over and reveals himself. There's a great, like, little car chase. Mm -hmm. He basically cut, he, he speeds around them and cuts them off so they're forced to stop. Exactly. And they all get out and pull their guns. 
Like, again, everyone who sees Michael just pulls a gun on him. Mm-hmm. And and then Michael gets out of the car and no one is happy to see him. <laughs> They're like, God damn it, Michael, you almost killed us. And Carlos, who doesn't even like Michael, we do get like one bit earlier where he's like so mad that they have to deal with Michael stuff, mm-hmm. like, which is incredibly reasonable yeah fully reasonable uh, michael and carlos just get them like roosters like want to like fucking oh, kill yeah. each other oh yeah they like actually launch each other they yeah have to be physically separated exactly they have to like they're like just bumping their chests together <laughs> it's like oh god yeah i like how sloppy it is i really appreciate when like an emotional like bar fight style fight happens and it's not like cool and stylistic oh, it's no, just it's two idiots Bumping their chests at each other. Yeah, it's great. I love it so much. God. But anyway, so Carlos is especially pissed at Michael because Michael let Fee get caught. And Agent Strong is especially pissed at Michael. And everyone is especially pissed at Agent Strong for sucking really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you meet him and you're like, oh, you, I get you. You suck. Yeah, you're just a guy who sucks. Mm-hmm. But Michael has a plan. There's a way that it can be salvaged. Oh, did we mention that uh, Agent Strong is also played by the future, like, semi-lead of the gifted so matt next likes this dude yeah and brought him back i don't know why there's not a lot to him i mean that's the this is the character he plays yeah it's like kind of annoying rule follower dad exactly um i mean like i had forgotten that he was in the gifted i like him okay in the gifted yeah, i think he's like gives a better performance than i would have expected watching this episode <laughs> like we get another flashback uh, Which I think is going to be the last one, and thank God it it's isn't. It's not. Yeah, no. It, this is like, ben Watkins is doing a... I'm like, at this point, I'm like, I'm fully in. I'm like, I think Ben Watkins is my favorite writer. He's not. But like, no. he's making me fall in love with him No, totally. Over. We have this amazing sequence in which a flashback is intercut with present day. And in the flashback, like, Michael and Fee are having this intimate moment where, like, um, Michael said, like, he's worried for her because, like, people are shooting at her. And she says that she's never worried. And this, like, cuts with present day where Michael arrives at the warehouse where Fee is being held and he calls Gamble on the phone and says, I'm here. Look out the window. Look at me. I am physically here. And then we cut back to the flashback and Fee tells a story about her dad who, like, also she explained did not worry about things and, like, like had this whole thing about, like, you can... you can be living or you can live free Mm -hmm. and like how that means you have to like do more things and they're always like getting in trouble and she explains that when shit was really going down her dad had a thing that he would say to her he would say it's time to be brave little angel and that would mean that she had to drop on the floor and pray for her life Mm -hmm. so we come back to present day Mm -hmm. and michael is talking to gamble on the phone he says i need to talk to fiend it's like you have proof of life it's like no that was an hour ago you sent a picture I want to talk to Fee. And Gamble's like, no. And then Michael walks away. He oh, walks away. Baller. And like, Gamble's like, fine, fine, fine. And he holds up the, the phone to Fee. And they talk for a second. And and Fee's like, it's fine. I'm going to get you. Yada, yada. Michael says that. Not Michael says, yeah. Michael says, it's fine. I'm coming for you. Okay. Now let's talk about Wicked Pissa. <laughs> Here's the thing. I was, I love every choice that he is making in this episode. If I have one choice that he makes that I kind of wish he didn't, that I think he gilds the lily a little bit too much, mm-hmm. is because we all know he is going to say the thing. Right. We all know what is going to happen. We have set it up. He is going to say the thing. He's going to say, time to be brave, little angel, and that Fee is going to drop to the floor. We know that that is going to happen. So we're waiting for him to say it. And he decides to say it in the accent. I mean, that might be a script thing. I don't know. But like... I can see it going both ways. 
Yeah, the video is super obvious as soon as he uses this the Irish accent. That like it's a signal. Yeah, he's basically like, like "Hey, Gamble, um, I'm gonna do a code phrase. All right, you ready? Yeah, Here's the code phrase. <laughs> exactly. Like it would. I had that note too, but also it's too funny that he used too, the accent. Because it's so funny because it's hilarious, but also I do think that like in his romantic hero mind, he's bringing her back to these same flashbacks he's been having. No, yeah, totally. Like I understand why it's happening. Mm-hmm. It's. A little bit too much. Like, yeah, but I, he's a himbo. You know what? He's a fool. He's a man in love. This is his last chance. It is. It's so funny. Like, I think was... also the thing that allowed me to write that off as like, I will allow it, <laughs> is that like things, most everything that happens from here is, uh, is slow motion. Yeah. So I imagine the split second between when he has done this and when everything goes down is actually pretty quick. No, it's pretty quick. So even if Gamble realizes as he is being very obvious what is happening, like, I buy that it happens so quickly and this guy is so desperate and kind of stupid. Like, I I fully buy it. No, the thing is, I buy it as, like, my problem is not that this is going to give away to Gamble. I mean, like, that is part of it. Mm -hmm. My problem is that, like, his accent is so bad that it undercuts the emotion of what he's doing. But like, I think, but as we as we have like discussed previously on this podcast, the show doesn't think it's bad. The show exists in a world where this is a per, a pitch perfect Irish accent, and it's so like it draws attention to the accent in the moment when you should be a drawing attention to like this is the climax of the episode. Mm-hmm. This is what literally everything in the episode has been leading to, mm-hmm. and like it's so silly. <laughs> but um, I. I love that. Yeah. I think it's perfect. I know. It's like, I think, yeah. This show is a little bit stupid. I mean, it's a little bit stupid. And, and I like, love that about it. And like, this episode is going for big stupid. Yeah. Like. It is. And it's I, going. I'm fully sold. I'm fully yeah. in. My my center is moist. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he says the thing. V drops to the ground. And then like, Michael drops to the ground. And then like, dudes with machine guns just shoot like, the hell out of the warehouse. So anyone who is standing up is dead. Mm-hmm. It is very well shot. Mm-hmm. It is so melodramatic. Super melodramatic. It's Super so slow motion. It's, oh my god, it's so good, though. Yeah. Like, that's my thing, is that it's already, the thing that they're doing is already so big that him mm-hmm. doing the accent, too, is just, like, a little... Oh, you that's, from, to... that's from my episode. Or... Oh, yeah. But, like, that's... <laughs> like, it's so funny. Oh, god, anyway. But, yeah, so Gamble is dead. Afterwards, Agent Strong is so happy. Like, the, the happiest that we've ever seen. He's like, oh shit, wow. He's like, that was a good episode of Burn Notice. <laughs> He's so happy. It's like, all right, cool, we can go back to the DR now. Like, we're good. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, good job, Michael. And so he is happy, but Michael isn't because he watches Fee walk right out of the building, walk right past him, and immediately kiss Carlos. Mm-hmm. And, like, I appreciate that the show didn't do the whole thing where Michael, like, steps forward and then she goes past him. Like, it's more subtle because he's more stoic than that. Exactly. And it's, like, a really subtle moment. But you can see in his eyes, he's, like, he just has eyes for her. And he's, like, and she walks past him. And there's just, it's not a big moment, but it's an important moment. Like, Wicked Pissa really understands, like, filmic storytelling. Like, that is the thing that I'm, like... Like, watching this episode, like, he has a real sense of, like, just, like, composition and, like, fundam- like storytelling fundamentals that he can do stuff like that. Like, he knows 
he's really good at like knowing what the audience is looking for and knowing what the audience is watching and what the characters are thinking and communicating like the characters' feelings really well visually. Mm-hmm. I was I'm really impressed with like how well this like episode is directed, not just in a way where it looks nice mm-hmm. and it looks cool, but also that it's storytelling. Mm-hmm. Genuinely really good visual storytelling. Yeah. He's not just like translating the script. Yeah. He is contributing to it visually. Yeah. Like he is using the camera to tell a story, mm-hmm. not just filming a story, but the camera is telling the story. Yeah. Which I think is a, the mark of a lot of really well directed films. Mm-hmm. And like some of the best films are films in which the camera itself is like the narrator. Mm hmm. And, like, that is, it's very, very well done here. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Michael uh, meets with Sam and Jesse, and Sam is pissed because the CIA was bugging him. Yeah, we basically come in midway through a conversation yeah. where Michael is telling him all the places he should sweep for bugs, and yeah. Sam just gets more and more upset. I will say, genuinely, like, false note, another, like, small false, false note, not a false note, but, like, in my version of the show, like... Sam is not embarrassed that, he, like, because he says, like, oh, were yeah. you, like, you was like, wait, were you listening to me today? Like, at this morning with me and Elsa? And it's like, you should swipe your house for bugs. And he's like, God damn it. Like, he knows, <laughs> like, but, like, I feel like a slightly funnier version of the show would have been, like, pretty good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> or, like, so would you learn? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that. Here's my thing. I think that's it's so much more in character that Sam would have been, like, pretty great huh <laughs> that I don't think they were fucking <laughs> I think they were doing something that's much more embarrassing to Sam I think they were like I think they were like quilting or something like <laughs> she's teaching him embroidery exactly I think it's that that's the only way that it makes sense to me okay I, I buy that 100% um yeah I think like like it's like this when is canon. it's like when Sam was like going to all the cooking classes and stuff with Madeline. Mm-hmm. Like it's like that kind of thing. Yeah, hundred percent. Love that. And they're both anyway. Both Sam and Jesse are pissed at Michael for not telling them anything, but they're glad he's he's okay. Um, they explain that even the Lone Ranger had Tonto and the horse, and Jesse says that he is Tonto and Sam is the horse. Well, because basically they're like, hey, even though you're apparently not supposed to talk to us, like, if you ever need anything, just fucking call us. Your lone wolf act's gonna get you here's, killed. Here's my thing. I, I don't know if this is a problem with the script. Like, I think everything that they're saying makes sense and is reasonable, but it's also, like, the problem that Michael has in this episode is not that he's lone wolfing. Mm-hmm. It's that, like, he's not lone wolfing. He is, like, doing what the CIA is telling him to do. Yeah, exa- like, th- I, that was the only beat of this episode that actually felt wrong to me. Because uh-huh. it felt like a classic burn notice thing of, like, we get to the end and then their conclusion is wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like, no, that was not the, the yeah, story that The problem is did. not, like, I'm trying to be stoic and not involve you. The problem is I tried to involve you and didn't just do it. And, like, yeah, and it's weird. And, like, Agent Strongman is right there, like, saying repeatedly, like, when he first breaks and talks to them, like, mm-hmm. the guy is so mad that, like, it's immediately obvious why... Like he that wasn't it wasn't yeah it wasn't Michael's choice exactly and this is what I was saying earlier about how like the everyone is working on the assumption that like Michael is always the most competent person in the room and mm-hmm. it seems like the thing that they're mad at is that like he didn't get Agent Strong fired or something mm-hmm. it's like they're mad at him for like not being the person in charge right and so yeah that feels a little false yeah but and I that, like the Tonto and the horse thing it is funny 
Jesse's uh, great. Jesse's fucking great. And then we get one more scene. So Michael finally meets with Fee again, and Fee says she is touched that he remembered her story. And Michael's like, of course, I remember everything. You know, he's like absolutely in love with this woman. Mm-hmm. And again, the show is... This episode is so good at, like, the direction. The shot is so far away. They're, like, up opposite ends of a very wide no, shot. they are. But also, so they're there. They're on opposite ends of this really wide shot. And he says, like, they have this little nice conversation. They have a very nice conversation. And then kind of Fee moves forward. And, like, everything that is happening visually is telling us they're going to kiss. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, like, very standard cinema language for big fucking kiss Mm -hmm. and she goes in for the big fucking kiss and she turns and she kind of goes and kisses him on the on the cheek and then instantly go back to a flashback i know like and says take care oh right you're right and says take care but it feels very quick and then very quickly we cut back to the flashback to the initial flashback Mm -hmm. where um uh, michael says to the bartender like who's that girl Says that's Fiona Glennan, but you don't want anything to do with that. She's taken. And Michael points to her kissing the man that she is with on the cheek. The same kiss. And says, that's the kiss that you give when it's over. And then she, he, we watch him watch her walking away. Like, ruminating on that. And the episode ends. Good fucking button. Holy ben shit. Like, it wasn't even, like... Like, I feel like a, an earlier season Burn Notice would have done a similar beat, but they wouldn't have used the first flashback. They would have used a different exactly. one. Exactly. Like, but, like, we have been given one story. We have been given Michael's romantic version of the story where she's, like, she's taken, but, like, you know, we know Michael will get her in the end. Exactly. But then there's more to that flashback, and no. it totally recontextualizes. Ah! No. The thing is, when I watched the flashback the first time, I thought that the, like, narrative of the flashbacks was going to be him winning her over from the other guy mm-hmm. so that when we that's came... how it's set up exactly so when it when we go back to the flashbacks and it's like later and later it's like oh i guess they're not doing that and you enough time passes that you forget about that line mm-hmm. but like she's taken line and so when it comes back to that it's like oh right that was a thing that he said what was going on with that and we learn the thing that they were doing with that is so good is so good mm-hmm. just like this is an episode of Burn Notice that sticks the landing thematically and emotionally, I think, better than any episode any other uh, Any other episode of Burn Notice, like, easily. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like, thing that it is doing structurally is so much more complex and interesting than they've ever done before yeah. that they're doing this episode. And we will give our final thoughts on this episode, but first, we do have to talk about some spy tips. Yeah. And this... All right, so we've got exactly five possible ones here. There were not a lot of good spy tips this episode. Mm-hmm. Well, because we were very in the moment. Exactly. And, like, more than other episodes, like, this was about his internal feelings about stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, not necessarily what they were physically doing. Exactly. So let's go through them. The average hit rate for a trained marksman firing at a target from 50 feet under ideal conditions is over 99%. Of course, that assumes you can see your target. If you're under fire and shooting blind, the hit rate drops to about zero. Yeah, I think that it's useful that, like, firing from 50 feet is... I don't know. Yeah. Well, actually, no, because he's not being specific about the gun. I thought, because when I was hearing this tip during the episode, I was like, oh, yeah, that'll probably be a a, a good spy tip. But now that I'm looking at it, it's just, if you're a good shooter and you're under 50 feet... 
and you're in ideal conditions, you're going to hit them. Yeah. This actually doesn't tell us anything. I would say like, I was thinking it was more like that tip from a couple of episodes with Pat, uh, a couple of episodes ago with Pat Oswalt, where uh, it was a, uh, the machine gun from a long distance. It gets less accurate. So as long as you keep moving, you'll probably be fine. I thought that's what this tip was, but it's not. This tip is if you're a good shooter, good job. And if you're a good shooter, but you can't see anyone, no. I mean, I think like the most charitable read of this mm-hmm. is that like, Shooting blind is a waste of time. Yeah, but I think that's always true. And most I mean, of like cover some... fire isn't that they're trying to hit the other person. It's just that they're trying to distract them with gunshots. Yeah. I think, like, yeah, I think the most charitable read is that. Okay. I don't think it's particularly good. No. All right. Let's see. Now the question is, are there any good spy stuff? <laughs> that's the, yeah, because, like, there's really the not a lot of spy stuff going on. It's like they trail. The only spy stuff going on is the CIA is spying on American citizens doing their work for them. Yeah, no, like, that is... But now the only tension in this spy tip section is, is there any? (laughs) Anyway, being an effective sniper is less about firing your weapon than it is about choosing your location. An ideal sniper perch allows you to estimate range accurately, gauge wind wind velocity and direction, and keep your weapon stable. The goal is to control as many variables as possible, so when your target shows up, all you have to do is pull the trigger. I mean, he doesn't actually... Tell me what an ideal sniper perch is. He just says, this is what an ideal sniper perch will do for me. Uh, yeah, but it, like, gives a decent list of things that you need. I guess. The goal is to control as many variables as possible. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I know that. Like, tell me what location would allow me to control as many I mean, we do see him set up at a location. We see him get on a roof. Yeah. (laughs) The look on your face is obstinate, but starting to come around to this is nothing. No, I And I just need you to say on mic that this is nothing. I mean, the thing is, when we do this... Now I kind of want there to be no... Right, same. (laughs) Right? I don't know. I feel like this is... No, um... Because we've had sniper tips before. We've had snipers before. Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying right now is that I am the attorney for the defense. <laughs> like, and I will do right by my client. I mean... And argue for it. You brought it to court, which is honestly more than it deserves. God, all the stuff, like, I had to have five. <laughs> I mean, you didn't. No, like, again, I think it's very important that there is a tension... About whether or not it's going to pass. And that one we have determined didn't. All right. It has been deleted from the script. All right. Two uh, more. Two, two f- more. Two more possible spy tips. Finding someone who's been abducted is a race against the clock. Each minute that passes increases the area you have to search. If you know the vehicle the kidnapper is driving, the chances of catching them rise significantly, which is why a smart kidnapper's first move is to burn his vehicle. I feel like we've had a kidnapper tip before, and also, no shit. If you know what it, their car, their, the car they're driving, you'll find them easier. It's like, hey, if you know the guy whose face you're looking for is, then you can find him easier. You're so mean now. <laughs> I'm angry. It's ironic because we like this episode I so know. much. I mean, I'm I'm more mean at your impulse to leave it in. I'm I want to be clear. I'm not mean about the episode. I'm mean to you again. <laughs> I want to punish we have you. To... 
Again, it's not like there were better ones that I took right. out. These were all the ones that, like, I could maybe mount a case for. Mm-hmm. This is, like, that is it. And, and what there, was your case for that last one that you've already deleted because you know I'm right? Well, like, if you, like... Um, know what the car is, you can find the car? Well, no, but if you're a smart kidnapper, you immediately ditch the car. Yeah, but we know that. We've seen them ditch cars multiple times. I know. Like... <laughs> Like, there's a lot of stuff in there that is technically information. <laughs> like, I, I think I'm getting aggro partially because, like, it adds to the drama of the podcast. No, totally. But also because I feel insulted that you're putting this in front of me and saying this okay. shit is a good dinner. Here's the thing. It's when very I, nutritious. And I'm saying it's shit. And you're like, I, it's nutritious. When I take out spy tips, when I pick ones to pick, mm-hmm. like... The judgment that I am making is not, this is a good spy tip. It's, this is a spy tip. It is not just narration. Okay. Like, I... I will give you that. I am getting things that are structurally spy tips that have information in them. Mm -hmm. So we can decide whether or not that information is enough. Like, the thing is, if I am making, if I am finding a thing that is structurally a spy tip and not just narration, Mm -hmm. and I make a call about whether or not it's a thing before we get in, I'm unilaterally making a decision about whether or not this episode will pass. Like, I guess that's true. And, like, and, and obviously on episodes where there's more clear-cut ones, you will cut those. No, yeah. But on but episodes like, when there are fewer clear-cut ones, exactly. you to exactly. torment us. Yeah. Again, there has to be a narrative tension to this section. <laughs> and like, yeah, but like, what if I... Because there has been times where I have put in a spy tip where I'm like, I kind of don't think this is anything, but I'm going to put it in. And then you accept it. In any case, we are down to one. And then there was one. All right. That's probably nothing. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm, uh, I'm yeah. leaning towards nothing. In a hostage situation, tactical da- data is usually the most important. Your focus is on details like the building's entry points and blind spots, your target's potential escape routes, and your team's assault capabilities. But sometimes, even more important than your knowledge of the situation is what you know about the person you are trying to save. This is structured like a spy tip, but it feels more like narration than any of the other ones because he's basically like, you gotta know your team. Well, that's the way that all of these... The ones in this episode are structured. Like, yeah. I think, like, I, in offering the ones that I'm offering, I'm also acknowledging that, like, the way that they we're are We're not written, learning anything about spy tips. We're learning or, stuff about the characters. Well, no, no, that's not... What I'm saying is that, like, the way that these are... Stru- like, the actual usefulness of the tips might be a little more hidden mm. because, like, they're written with different goals. That's true. I mean... This is taking a different tack on spy tips where it's, like... Certainly. Definitely narration... That has information in it versus mm-hmm. like this is a yeah. The tip. problem is is the because they're not really doing anything new in this episode on like a like literal yeah. action level. We're not learning anything, new. right? Of course, when you're in a hostage situation, you want to know the entry points and blind spots. Of course, you want to know your target's potential escape routes. Of course, you need to know your team's ass- like like none of this is stuff that I wouldn't put on my list automatically. Right. I don't know, but like. I'm also someone who would never do any of these things in a million years. So it's like... So if you were walking into a hostage situation and hadn't seen this episode, what would be the information, tactical information you're looking for? You know, I don't know. I don't, like, I don't... Again, I am being the defense attorney. (laughs) And I'm the judge who's pissed that I'm missing lunch for this. Yeah. All right, so no spy tips. Zero. I think that might be a first. There was an episode back in season three... 
Uh, oh, yeah, there was a Rashad Razani episode in season three where they didn't get any of the tenants they needed to make it a great episode of Burn Notice. It was the only... Oh, no, the, the that one and then season three episode... The season three finale, both uh, episode eight and episode 16 of season three didn't get any of the, like markers for if this is a great episode of Bruno's, but I don't think we've ever had zero spy tips. I think right. this is the first time we've ever had zero practical spy zero tips. Pri- zero spy tips. Um, because this is a fundamentally different kind of episode. Mm-hmm. Kind of episode. I mean, I think, can we just say it? It's a great episode of television. It's a great episode. Of, well, we haven't even done the other stuff. Yeah, but like... <laughs> Are there sp- is there spycraft or violence? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess, because they're spying on each other. and Yeah, and like... I mean, it's it's kind of neither... <laughs> Yeah. But, like, the spy craft of, like, knowing your team and trusting them. And yeah, like... and the final gambit. And, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Uh, well, the final gambit is death. Yeah, but it's, like, com- like communicating. It's got passwords and stuff. It's got, like, mm-hmm. you know, sending messages. And I guess Michael also is trying to, like, earlier when he uses his sniper rifle, like, trying to hide his own shot yeah. in Sam's, like, free shooting. Exactly. So I think there's stuff there. There's There is enough... But it's on fucking thin ice. All right. Is there an alias? No. Do we want to count his? What is his name? His Irish alias? Yeah. Oh. Oh. Michael. Fuck. You're right. There is an alias. Michael yeah. McBride. We Michael see McBride. him as Michael McBride. Exactly. So Michael McBride is in this episode. He is. You're. Oh my god. I can't believe I forgot about that. Yeah. You are so right. Yes, of course. So this actually might get to be a great episode of Burn Notice. Uh, as long as two char- supporting characters are used well, technically. Right. Okay. Holy shit, you just turned this whole thing around. Yeah, okay. Fuck. We're back into it. Okay, so. Our the tension's old- back. The our- drama. Okay, does Fee get to blow something up or get to be co-protagonist? Yes. She blows something up. And she doesn't quite get to be co-protagonist because it's all through, like, Michael's Uh POV. Yeah. It's, like, about her, not with her. That's very true. But But she does get to blow something up. She does get to blow something up. And then they kiss in the fucking... Yeah, in the silhouette of the the silhouette. Like, that's, like, God, that's it. I mean, you know that her, her center was moist. You know that her sex was dripping. God. Oh Weirdly, I find in romance novels when they refer to a genital as their the person's sex, I find that the least like graphic way of describing it. I almost like it. I no, I hate it. I don't like that one. You don't like that one. What's your favorite romance oh, novel? I um, don't know. But they're also they sex. use cock a lot. Okay, holy shit! They, like no, I thought they were no. going to be more subtle when I started reading romance no. novels because no, like you are not like because oh, cock hardened. Like, cock is the only sexy, explicit word for the penis. Like, usually, well, usually I thought that they would dance around it more, like his hardness. Well, no, but you no, know, like this they, is... The, but they don't dance around no, it. This is my thing. There's a very weird thing that happens when I watch British television, mm-hmm. wherein I think in America, like, there is a distinction in, like, context and, like, kind of implication and connotative, like, in connotation between dick and cock i think like Mm. dick is like funny Mm -hmm. you know like dick is like the non-sexual but like kind of slang word for Mm -hmm. that's like kind of a swear word Mm -hmm. it is like a dirty word but it is like a dirty word for like a dick is a limp penis Mm -hmm. or if it's like an erect penis it's not a sexy one or whatever Mm -hmm. it's just like it's a dick you know whereas 
cock is like a sexualized penis. I guess that's fair. Like, but in the UK, they say cock all the time. And so it's all, I feel it like kind of weird watching British shows sometimes where they just say like cock, cock, cock. Like, well, they say cunt a lot more too. I mean, they say cunt a lot more too, but like, it's just so like. They call it cunny in the, uh, in the, in the, the historical romances. Yeah. Cause that's what they used to say. They don't say it a lot though. Usually they're yeah. more flowery about a woman's. Flower. George O'Keefe. Yeah. I feel like the FCC or whatever will not let the word cock on television. Because it's so sexual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you have to read, like, sexual things to see the word cock a lot. And I have. Yeah. So anyway, should we continue? The have we tantalized? About... Have we teased them enough? Here's the thing about, like, the word cock. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that, like, especially in comparison to the word dick, like, it's a very open mouth word. Christ. So when you're like, not wrong. When you say cock, your mouth kind of has to put put itself in the position that you could put a cock in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, totally right. Yeah. Anyway, point is the mouthfeel of cock exactly. feels like a mouthful of cock. It does. <laughs> this um, is the most explicit episode I think we've ever recorded. Right? Oh my god, I just recorded a rat salon that's also really horny. <laughs> I want to be clear, I don't think we're being horny, I think we're being explicit, and no, that absolutely. is, inf- like, very different. I mean, yeah, that's true. Okay, so was Sam P. Cruz Campbell? Oh, uh, was he? I think I so. Know. I think he, he was, like, talking about the garbage Wait, and being had, all funny. They had the garbage scene. And then the end, when he's, like, getting more and more dismayed at how much of his life, like, Michael yeah, has been spying true. on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I'll give it that. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's two of yeah, those. Yeah, so, so holy shit, you remembering Michael McBride, because I just like wrote that off as like a lovely flashback between yeah. Michael and Fee, but you're fucking, holy shit. Anyways, yeah. Jesse. Jesse, um, also got some fun comedy with Jesse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like, yeah, totally, because he got to do fun comedy. I'm Tonto, he's the horse. Yeah, exactly. So good. <laughs> and uh, Madeline, does Madeline get a genu- genuine emotional moment? Or with be- Michael at the beginning? That's true. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah, that works. They have a good scene at the beginning. Yeah. Like, it's so much not an episode about them. Totally not. But also, like, she, I would consider the case of the week, Michael being back in Miami, and she was in that, and he, like, came to her first and was like, you have to stop asking about me. I would not say that, but I will say that, like, I think the episode's really smart about having that scene up front, Mm -hmm. so the episode cannot be about her, while still, still feel like... Still feeling like it is doing the work that it needs to do to include her and, yeah. like, not feel weirdly false that, like, we don't have this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it gets it out of the way, and I think it's very well done. I do, too. Yeah. So that's a four for four. But this, the- somehow, zero spy tips, this is a great episode of Burn Notice. Well, this is, like, what I was talking about last week, wherein, like, because we have these character sections, like, understanding the characters is, like, an equally crucial thing to making a great episode of Burn Notice. You're, yeah, like, no, you're right. If you can't quite hit all the mechanical beats, but if you're hitting all the character beats, then, like, that's part of it. Like, that's why we have the character section. That's true. Yeah. It's very true. I mean, because... But that's also, like, like to zoom out on just procedural television, like, what I have always said is that procedural television is great if the characters are exactly it's like you can you can appreciate sort of like being swept up in like the structure but like if the characters within that structure aren't interesting then it's nothing right and that's what i've always loved about burn notice and about my favorite procedurals is that like they they design characters that within the structure 
like don't just provide comfort, but like I genuinely care about. Right. And it I, frees I, us from having to do like complicated plot twists so that we can just focus on the emotional journeys of these characters. Yeah, which is really interesting because I think like we've already said this is a great episode of television. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's a great episode of television like, for sure. It's it's a great episode of television. The question I think is is it the best episode of Burn Notice? And we'll talk about that in a second. But what I really w- like want to hone in on is that thing that you said, because I think this is the least procedural episode of Burn Notice. I think that I would give you that. It's yeah. also, I don't know if I mentioned this, because I was looking at the trivia earlier. This is the 100th episode of Burn Notice. Wait, is it really? This is episode 100. Of course it is. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like It feels like a very special episode yeah, without so... making it a very special episode. Well, it is. Because like... it's integrated better into the plot, I think, than a lot of like episode 100s are. I feel like very special episode has two different connotations. Yeah, I, I and and like there's the classic sense of like this is a episode about the morality of not doing drugs and like it's yeah. it's a hor- sort of bookended like, yeah. you know, sp- uh, special like right. after school special sti- style very special episode. Yeah. But also like there's the other version of it which is more closer to this episode which is it is an off format episode mm-hmm. wherein the like purpose purposeful ducking of format is used to communicate a certain amount of importance mm-hmm. to the story. Yeah, and to, um, to sort of celebrate how far we've come. Yeah, but by even doing or something just in, a little different that's or, like, hey guys, we made it. Or just in general, it doesn't even have to be celebratory. It's just like it is we're using format and like format breaking to signal the importance of something. Mm-hmm. And like that's what I think television is for. Yeah. I think in that sense, television is for very special episodes. Like, would you not say it's a whatever the guy, the German word talking uh, Jeremy O'Hara? It's so hard to say. I always think about that one Brian David Gilbert, the Pokemon rap video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Because I'm super, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's this big, long German word. Like, I'm pretty sure I was just literally talking about this the other day because I was talking about Wagner because uh, like, and I think he coined it. And how, like, like modern-day musicals are those. And, like, I don't know, the sort of psychology that's required to make a thing like that. Anyway, that's not important. Yeah. Very uh, special episode. Episode 100. Episode 100. Like, and the thing that I love about this episode, and the thing that makes me, like, like it so much is the off-formatness of it. Mm-hmm. Is the way that the format is, like, bent towards the story. Mm-hmm. And, like, making the story the thing that it is. And so, like... I like it a lot, like, and I think because it's, I think because of that, I might think it is the best episode of Burn Notice, but it's also one of those things where it's like, is it I think, so different that it's, it doesn't feel indicative and it feels yeah, almost unfair to pick it? Exactly. But that's the thing I think with a lot of television shows like this, mm-hmm. I think like you can have like a best episode. It can either be like the quintessential episode mm-hmm. or like the transcendent episode. I think yeah. there's two different. It's like, you know, people who say like Once More With Feeling is the best Buffy episode. Yeah. Versus people who say The Body is the best exactly. Buffy episode. Although like both, both, those, of, those, both are, of those are separate. But yeah. like one is more character based than the other like one's a gimmick and one's like yeah well i mean yeah i think they both are kind of gimmicky in their own ways what what would be like a quintessential greatest episode of buffy i don't know it might be like one of the like like the the season two finale when Rachel turns bad maybe exactly or that sort of thing or Mm -hmm. like part of what's going on is that they are executing the formula to the best ability. Right, right, right. Like, right, yeah, right. like... And, like, I think previous to this, I would have argued that Bad Breaks is the best... Ep- I quintessential will, episode yeah, of Yeah, I will say, yeah. But I 
kind of I'm on your side that I think this might be the best episode of Burn Notice. And I think specifically what like led me to that, like what what got me over the edge from my uh-huh. my trembling sex yeah. was that it turned out to be a great episode of Burn Notice. The fact yeah. that like it didn't so far stray from the things that make this show what it is. That yeah. It doesn't feel like, like I honestly hate when we say, you know, transcends. Because it acts like the thing that it was coming from wasn't good enough on its own. Right. And, like, that was the central... We were... <laughs> we made jokes about it off mic and then just now. But, like, there was a whole screenwriter Twitter debate about a Jeremy O'Harris tweet that was, like, good TV doesn't feel like TV. And, like, everyone got mad at him. Because, like, good TV can still be TV and we like that. Actually. <laughs> actually, TV is quite good and there's a reason we all watch it. And I do think that there is something, too, when people are like, oh, you should watch this episode because it's like it transcends the form. And it's like, I don't, I want it to just be really good in the form. And I think this episode toes that line. I do think. Where oh, it transcends what we know this show's strengths to be prior to this without not being a recognizable burn notice episode. No, I, I agree. But I also at the same time think it does a little bit. But for me, like I said earlier, I think like. To me, finding moments of transcendence is the point of television. Mm-hmm. But with, but I think the, the, there maybe I'm thinking about it more binary, like, and you're thinking about it more fluid, like, yeah. which makes sense. Because like I, I, I usually think the connotation of transcend is it was like basic and boring before, and now it's like that but better. And I like from this is that like it still takes a lot, most of the elements that we already know and love and just does something wholly new and exciting yeah. with it. Exactly. This The thing about this episode is that like this is the episode that is most like the episodes that we pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's um, thematically and emotionally satisfying. Yeah. It has a clear arc that harkens back to things. Yeah, and it's, like, an episode that is willing to have these, like, story hooks to it mm-hmm. that is, like, it has a structural thing. It has, like, the kinds of things where it's, like, we're going to tell the story in a certain way that benefits, like, the story. Mm-hmm. Not because, like, this is just the way that we tell stories. Sure. But this is the way that we tell this story. Exactly. And, like, that's the thing, right? I think, to me, like, all of my favorite television shows are that. Yeah. Are shows that, like, from week to week, like, find a different way to tell a story. Mm-hmm. You know? And, like, this show is not a show that really does that. And right here at this moment, it does. And so to me, like, this is the most quintessentially TV thing you can do mm-hmm. is to, like, have this moment of transcendence. Like, I would say, like, ironically, I think that, like, moments of transcendence are quintessential to television. Yeah. And the thing about, like, transcendence is you can't do it all the time. Sure. Or it doesn't work. It's not transcendent. Like, and, like, you need... Other episodes where you're not doing it in order right. for it well, to Right, well, you can't subvert something if it doesn't, if it's not exactly. already a trope. Exactly. And it's why it's so annoying when, like, anytime, like, a cliche or a tropey thing happens and people are like, oh, this is bad because I noticed a trope. And it's like, no, it's, that's yeah. not, it, you can think it's bad, but it's not bad because of the trope. It's like, a trope is a trope for a reason. It's how you use the trope. Right. It's like, procedurals are procedurals for a reason, but it's how you use the procedural format to do something new exactly. and exciting and interesting. It can be both exciting and subversive and comfortable. Well, this is my thing uh, talking about, I think I talked about this last week of how... We'll talk about last week, last week. We'll talk about last week, last week. Um, <laughs> how a lot of my aesthetic problems with a lot of stuff that comes out right now is that like there's this kind of grounded aesthetic that a lot of genre media has wherein 
Like, everything about the way that it's designed and the way that it's shot, like, is done in a way that, like, kind of pushes against the idea that we are being told a story. Mm-hmm. Like, all of, like, the camera work, like, you put, like, cameras in places to kind of, like, hide that story is happening. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, there's not a sense of narration to the direction. There's not a sense of, like, narration to the, like, design or anything because, like, everything is so, like, naturalistic. Like, there's this almost fear that stories are stories, mm-hmm. you know? Well, like, I, and I, 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 we might have talked about this off mic about, like, how we're both sort of frustrated by, like, the insistence on, you know, realism. Yeah. And how we find that very boring. Because we don't watch stories to be directly reflect, like, unless you're watching a documentary. But even so, you know, you don't watch a story to be like, yes, I 100% believe based on my literal lived experience that that is exactly how things would have played out. And if it happened any differently or any more neatly, I will be unsatisfied. And I think that that's the way that we have kind of been trained yeah, because that's what happened, mm-hmm. like, kind of in the last 20 years or so, mm-hmm. was, like, this was the thing that happened where we decided... We're trying to outreal ourselves. We're trying to outreal ourselves, and, like, and like it kind of becomes this thing where people, like, look at tropes and go, that's a trope, that's bad, mm-hmm. because they want to, like, pretend, like, stories aren't stories, mm-hmm. or, like, they want to be, like, the story has to be completely unpredictable, or whatever. Just because, like life. Just like life, or whatever. Or just, like... It becomes this thing where, like, in order to get a certain kind of immersion that they want, Mm -hmm. it means that nothing can be stylized, Mm -hmm. nothing can feel purposeful. Yeah. You know? If they notice something stylistic or, you know, narrative devicey, then they get mad rather than being like, oh, that's clever. Exactly. Like... Wrong kind of cleverness is being prioritized yeah exactly or just you know yeah it either needs to be so self-referential that like the storytelling device is like stamped with a stamp that says storytelling device yeah and then like they look directly in camera and go i'm doing a storytelling device or it has to be so hidden that like it transcends media but then it it also becomes this thing where even in our like popcorn movies and Mm -hmm. our like you create these scenarios wherein, like, we want to do tropey stuff, but also we don't want to do tropey stuff. So we kind of skip the tropes. Mm-hmm. And then we fill all the time that we're skipping by not doing tropes with, like, jokes and pre action scenes that aren't about anything. Mm-hmm. You know? Because it's like, how do we do... It's like, how can we take all of the story out of stories mm-hmm. and still put stories on television mm-hmm. or in our theaters? And like, yeah, I would argue that there are very few stories in like certainly popcorn movies anymore. Now they're just spectacles. Exactly. But also spectacles that aren't that good at the spectacle. I've been like really annoyed with when the Oscars like announcements came out because we're, we're recording this right as the Oscar announcements were, were put out. Oscar announcements, uh, nominations were announced. And, like, everyone was like, Spider-Man was snubbed. And, like, we've already talked about Spider-Man on this Uh podcast and how you didn't care for it. And I was like, oh, that was fun. But, like, in what fucking world is Spider-Man good enough to justify an Oscar nomination, let alone the outrage that it did not get a nomination? Right. It's... Like, you're going to tell me that Black Panther, the only, like, Marvel movie to ever win anything or be nominated, is on the same level as we got to see two of the other Spider-Man. But yeah, so all of this is to say, this was a fucking great episode of Burn Notice and Television, and it, like, 
even if the rest of this this season is garbage, which I don't think it will. I don't be. think it will. I, be. I don't know if it can maintain a perfect streak we because had, we've had two episodes in a row now that were great episodes of Burn Notice and great episodes of television. Exactly. Has that happened before? Well, no, actually. So season four, we had two great episodes of television right off the bat, but the first episode wasn't a great episode of Burn Notice. We've oh no, we have okay season three. There were uh, two episodes back to back that were both great episodes of Burn Notice and great episodes of television. And back then it was Craig O'Neill and Michael Horowitz. Interesting. Which is who we usually oh, and that also happened in season two with oh. Craig O'Neill and Jason Ning. Interesting. So we've had that before twice. But not that often. Not, you know, it, it's definitely not a regularity. No, totally. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I'm really, really impressed. I'm really impressed with Ben Watkins, who I am now one degree away from. <laughs> like at this point, I am one degree away from or directly connected to most of the people who worked on Burn Notice, at least behind the scenes. And it's so strange because I know none of them will ever talk to me because we're too mean when we start. Right. And there wouldn't be a reason for them to start listening at season seven. They would, of course, listen to our first episode and we fucking destroy it. We do. And we're so mean to Matt Nix for so long. And like Matt is the reason that everyone's together. Daddy exactly. is the reason they're all together. So like instantly starting with like your dad sucks. Like we were never going to recover from that. And it's so sad because like. We love this show. We do. And it's, it's good y'all. Oh my God. But the thing that's really interesting to me is that this is like the first two episodes of the season like mm-hmm. that's not a thing that's happened before where like uh, not not back-to-back great burn notice and great episode we had season four started with two great episodes of television yeah but not two great episodes of burn notice this exactly. is the first time that that's happened exactly and i think that signals something about the last season mm-hmm. especially because we also have a shorter episode order mm-hmm. which like suggests like a slightly more like cohesive thing that has less time mm-hmm. for i hate saying filler because I think filler is a word that's misapplied a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think that also television could use with more filler. However, well, now that we're at the final season, we don't have to like set up a brand new bullshit nonsense thing to happen next. We can tell a self-contained story that gives us satisfying yeah. endings for everyone. Well, like what I'm saying is kind of like a lot of times people use filler to mean anything that is not immediately relevant to the overarching plot. Yeah. As opposed to like well, we need an episode for this week, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, I agree. And that's what I mean, is I feel like yeah. we should have more of that kind of filler. Exactly. Like, it doesn't always have to be related to the main plot. Yeah. And it can still be good. Exactly. Like, like the Fiona um, bounty hunting episode from season one, I don't think there was much, if all at all, like stuff related to the burn notice plot. No, it's just a good episode of television. Like mm-hmm. that's what... That's what television is. That's why I like television. Yeah. It's this not just that I like long form storytelling. It's that I also like that like each it's got separate units that can do different things. Exactly. That's like what makes the medium great. Mm-hmm. This episode of television. Yeah. What makes the medium great. So congratulations, Ben Watkins, and congratulations, Wicked Fissa JD. You fucking got me. You fucking got me. All right, let's That's the kind of kiss you do when it's over. <laughs> Like, that's such a good line. It's that's genuinely good. such a good line. That is uh, so, like, I genuinely did not... it's so cocky, and then he cuts back to present day, and he's so sad. Like, I did not think that Burn Notice was Burn Notice was capable of, like, nailing that kind of beat. Mm-hmm. Like, um... Yeah, because it certainly but, never has in the past. Like, it's never really attempted Mm-mm. that kind of beat in the past, where it's, like, so much of it is about 
the like framing narrative mm-hmm. and the structure and the callback of it and the like setup and like the fact that like we got half of the scene earlier and like the way that everything comes together for that moment is there's a totality of like the like design mm-hmm. like in um, structure and everything that is built towards getting us to that moment mm-hmm. and like a way that like the show doesn't really commit to like the, this episode commits to that moment mm-hmm. in such a degree that I did not think was possible. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, I, f- I feel like other than that one weird sequence where the boys are talking at the end that like <laughs> just sort of seems like out of nowhere, like this episode, every moment was earned. Yeah. Great Even ups- when decisions were being made that were like, that I disagree with or that were bad, I bought everyone. Yeah, totally. You know, it works. It's it great. Works. It great. It's great. It's Good great. Job. Oh, God. Good job, Wikipedia. Good job, Ben Watkins. Good job, Vincent E.L. There it is. That's the, the, the segue I've been waiting for you to make. Good job, Vincent E.L. for our theme music. If you want more from Vince, go to vincentel.bandcamp.com. And until next time, bye. My member is throbbing. Members awful. Members awful. I honestly think I prefer, like, erection because it's... To member? Yeah, because I think yeah, erection no. is more about, like, its purpose rather than its, like, literal physical being. Yeah. I feel like erect is usually a modifier for penis, uh, but when it becomes its own uh, yeah. noun, I right. think that that's nice. I just like cock. Okay. Well, that's that's your opinion. That's your opinion. Isn't that a meme? <laughs> <laughs>